Well, uh, good morning again, and uh, you know, last week, I just want to say what a great celebration that was, so thank you again for all of you who were here and all of you who uh, participated, and uh, I don't know, uh, I got to be honest with you, I think the highlight of last week uh, was the cake. Uh, it was incredible, and you know what? I came on Monday expecting to have more cake because I knew we had leftover, and the high schoolers had eaten it all on Sunday night. So uh, it's kind of a rough beginning of the week for me, but, uh, but it was a great Sunday. So thank you again uh, to all of you who were here, and certainly we give God praise for these last 40 years. Well, we're back in Luke. We took a brief pause last week. We were in Matthew, but now we're back in Luke again, and we are looking at the 15th chapter today, the first 10 verses. And so I invite you to hear these words. Luke writes this, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents." Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do give you great praise. We thank you, Lord, for this 23rd Psalm that we have said repeatedly this morning. We pray that we would not just know Scripture, but that we would be formed by it. And I pray in the same way this morning as we talk about these two somewhat well-known parables, God, that you would also help us to be formed by them. And I pray that the words in my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, so we're back in Luke, so let me remind you, just in case there's any way that you have forgotten, that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. He's headed toward his, towards the cross, toward his death. But in the middle of all of that, in the middle of this very lengthy passage over like 12 or 13 chapters or uh, where Jesus, uh, where Luke is focused on Jesus' walk toward Jerusalem, here we do have a subtle shift. Jesus has been talking, primarily he's been going back and forth between the disciples and the crowds. But today, and over the next couple of chapters, Jesus now will begin to go back and forth between the disciples and the Pharisees. 
Now, this isn't the only shift. The other shift that we also begin seeing is that rather than being quite as straightforward as Jesus has been, if you've been here over the last uh, few weeks, you know how straightforward Jesus has been. And now he begins to again talk in parables. It's interesting to try to understand why is it that Jesus is kind of making this shift and whether or not it is because of the fact that the Pharisees, right, in this case, who were so upset with the fact that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, and we remember that eating is more than just having a meal, it's kind of a a welcoming into a community, that Jesus is now doing these parables because of the fact that he wants to try to get past the defensiveness, the righteous indignation of these Pharisees, and so he begins to tell them stories. Parables, literally in the Greek, it means to throw alongside of. And so what Jesus is doing here, as many commentators say, is he's beginning to be a bit more subversive, of course. He's throwing alongside this story, along their lives, to see whether they will be able to look at it more carefully. Because truth be told, when we are defensive, when we have that inclination, it is much easier for us to see something when it is beside us than when it is on top of us. I was thinking about this and reminded of when I was a teenager uh, living in Pensacola, Florida. I walked into my garage and there was a mouse in the garage. And for some reason I thought, I don't want this mouse in the garage. Maybe he's going to get inside the house. And so I decided I needed to take care of him. I don't really like mice that much. I don't know, maybe you do. I don't really like them. So I had to come up with some kind of grand plan. How do I get rid of this mouse? And so I came up with it. It was going to be, I was going to take the lid off of the trash can, our big trash can that was right there. I had a shovel. I was going to scoop the mouse up and put him into the trash can and then quickly close the lid and then just let him slowly but surely die. And so uh, this was my plan. Uh, it was actually pretty brilliant. And, uh, and it all started working great, right? I did get the lid off the trash can. That was perfect. And amazingly enough, this must not have been that bright of a mouse as I think about it because he just sat there and I scooped him perfectly into the shovel. I mean, this was great. And, and, and everything was going wonderfully until as I began to lift it up, all of a sudden this mouse began to run up the handle of the shovel. And so as it was running up, like any self-respecting person would do, I began to scream. I threw the shovel up, the mouse went flying up, and I darted out of the garage and into my house. And then I went, we had a screen door, and I started looking, and I noticed that the mouse was just laying there, perfectly still. So I knew that the mouse was either dead or unconscious, I knew not, but I went out, and sure enough, it was just laying there. And what was interesting, of course, is because it was just laying there uh, kind of beside me at this point, and clearly at least knocked out, I could really kind of test and probe. I could just kind of kick them around a little bit. I got really close, and I did all those things. And the reason I was able to do that is because the mouse was just kind of unconscious, just laying there beside me, uh, and was not actually trying to get on top of me. And I actually think that there's, this is my image, I've never thought about it before, of a parable. And why a parable can be so effective. Because if Jesus were just to go right to the Pharisees, right, and just say this is exactly what's going on and throw this information on top of them, they would have done exactly what I did, which was to scream, throw their arms up, right, uh, and run away. But whenever it is that he just kind of tells this little parable and puts it alongside of them like an unconscious mouse, if you will, they can just look at it, they can test it and probe it, and they don't have to be afraid and they don't have to run away. And amazingly enough, 
they actually get much closer to understanding it than they ever would if it had been thrown simply on top of them. And so you see, I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing with this parable. And so he tells these two parables, these two dead mice. One of them, we know most of us, right? You've got a shepherd, you've got 99 sheep, you're missing one because you have 100 sheep. And so what does the shepherd do? He runs out, he goes, he finds the sheep, right? Amazingly enough, and he brings them back into the fold and they have a party. A woman realizes she's missing a coin. She has 10, she only has nine. What does she do? She turns on the lamp, she begins to look until she finds it. She finds the coin, she calls up her friends, let's have a party. Very straightforward. So what do we do with this? What are the Pharisees supposed to learn by this? Well, before we get to that point, I want to show you a video. Now, if you were here seven, eight years ago, I showed this video. And, and that's significant because if you know the video, you know the answer to the question that the video is asking. Some of you have already seen this in some other way, but I really wanted to show it again today. I feel like it's been uh, statute of limitations have run out. We can show it again. So let's see. Nobody give away the answer because, you know, you got you to gotta make sure that you can count this right. So, so let's watch this video now and we'll see uh, if you can guess this. This is a test of selective attention. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. How many passes did you count? The correct answer is 15 passes. But did you see the gorilla? This video is from research by Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabri and is copyrighted. So, I find this one of the most fascinating things. And when I first saw this, I did not see the gorilla. And I looked it up. It's close to about 50-50 or so when they do this, 50%. The 50%, uh, the smartest people do not see the gorilla. Uh, <laughs> totally kidding. I have no idea. Uh, that was a joke, but... I think this is completely fascinating, and I wanted to show this video again for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is because, yeah, I did not see it. When I, when I watched this, it was when I was doing my uh, doctoral studies, and it was me and about uh, eight or nine folks, because I've really tried to, I've wrestled with this for a while. How did I not see that massive gorilla? And I realized that it was the first or second day of studies, and when they said, count how many passes, I was like, oh, I am going to get this right. And I wanted, because why? Honestly, because I wanted to impress them. I wanted to impress the other students who were there. I wanted to impress my professor, right? I wanted to do well. I wanted to make sure that they knew just how good I was. So I was counting them like nobody's business. I'm pretty sure I got it right. I don't even know if I got it right. So when I saw that gorilla, I was like, oh my word. And so one of the things this reminds me of is, is when we think about Pharisees, right? It's so easy to just think, oh, they're so horrible. They're so horrible. But think about the Pharisees for whom they really wanted to get things right when it came to their faith. 
And one of the things that's important to see is that we think, oh man, how can they not care about the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors? Well, because of the fact that they were so focused on making sure that they got their faith right, that, that they were doing well, right? That, that other people were like impressed by just how faithful they were, that they wanted to follow all of those particular rules. And because of that, they missed this incredible gorilla, which were the sinners and the tax collectors who needed to know that they were loved by God. But it is very easy for those of us who are overachievers and want to make sure that we get things right to completely miss that. Now, the second reason, though, that I wanted to show this was because of the fact that when it comes to things like parables, it is very easy for us to miss the main point. So when it comes to a parable like this, to these two parables, oftentimes what we do is we focus on the sheep. We focus on the coin. Part of it is because we think, well, that's probably us, therefore I'm going to begin to focus on that. But what's fascinating about both of these parables is that those are not the subjects, right? Those are both the objects of these parables. And objects are important. But the subject, the main thing driving these parables is not the sheep and it's not the coin. It is the shepherd and it is this woman. When Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees, what he wants them first and foremost to focus on is not the sheep or the coin. He wants them to focus on the shepherd and on the woman. Because what he wants us to see is the kind of God that we serve. What he is trying to teach the Pharisees here is that the kind of God that you serve is a God like the shepherd who is going to go into the darkest and most dangerous of places like a wilderness, who's going to go through the bushes that might there, who will risk everything, even his own life, in order to find the sheep. This is the kind of God that we serve. He tells the parable of the woman because he wants us to know that this woman who likely lived in some kind of windowless small abode, that she stops everything, she turns on the lamp, and she begins to sweep and sweep and sweep under every nook and cranny until she can find this lost coin. What Jesus wants the Pharisees and others to know first and foremost is the kind of God that we serve, a God who takes the initiative. I love uh, how one commentator says it. It's just, it's, it's impactful to me, which was that God misses us when we are lost. It's this great kind of humanizing sense that God misses you, when you have gone astray. And we see this, of course, because the objects, what are the objects doing? Nothing. What does a coin do to be found? When we use coins a lot, you know, back in the day, again, when I was in my teenage years, you know, if coins could do something, like be like, hey, I'm over here, I would be a millionaire today. Because I lost money all the time put it in my pockets. I brought it out. There's change everywhere. My mother loved every once in a while she would clean my room and she would get rich. <laughs> and if it had been me and coins could do something, they'd be like, hey, here we are. But they don't do anything. What does a sheep do? Ken Bailey says a sheep does nothing. When it is lost, it is paralyzed. It just sits there. It will not budge. Even if it hears a voice that it knows, it just sits there if it's lost out of fear. It does nothing. 
And so in the good Presbyterian reform tradition of which we are a part, we believe very strongly that first and foremost before anything else, we serve a God who initiates and who will always relentlessly come and look for us. There's a Canadian pastor named Hugh Reed, and he tells this story that I thought was really kind of incredible about a person named Alan who was in his congregation and wanted to be baptized. And so Alan began to tell him his story. And when Alan was younger, um, um, in his early 20s, I think, Alan began to get into drugs. And so he really struggled. And, 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 and like oftentimes happens, he had to kind of lose everything. And so he lost everything. And he found himself wandering the streets of Vancouver, British Columbia. And one night he decided to go into a homeless shelter. And so he did. And he was laying there on, the, you know, on one of these bunks with this whole sl- Blew a bunks and listening to the snores and, and smelling the smells. And he began to say, what am I doing? What happened to my life? And he began to question, is it even worth continued living because of how things have gone? And he says, all of a sudden then, there was this voice. Someone came in and said, is there an Alan Roberts here? And Alan said, you know what, that, that, that he, had so, he had almost forgotten his name. That's how far gone he was. It hadn't been used in a long time, so he didn't even say anything. And then one more time, the voice said, is there an Alan Roberts here? And finally, Alan said, well, yeah, I'm here. And he said, well, your mom is on the phone. He said, my mom's on the phone. I don't even know where I am. How does she know where I am? And so she goes, he goes, and she gets, he gets on the phone, and his mom says to him, Alan, it's time to come home. And he says, come home, mom. You wouldn't even recognize me. I I don't know where I am right now. You don't want me to come home. And she said, Alan, there is a Salvation Army officer and he he has a plane ticket that he's going to have for you. I want you to come home. And how did Alan's mom even know that he was there Because since he had been gone, she had been calling homeless shelter after homeless shelter, calling and asking, is there an Alan Roberts who is there? And no matter how many times she heard no, she never stopped looking for I think this is a beautiful illustration of what Jesus is trying to show us in this parable, which is that Jesus will never stop looking. God is relentless. And even when God hears a no, God will keep coming again and again and again. Now, the other thing I really love about that story is that while I'm sure Alan's mom was great, there's nothing necessarily extraordinary about Alan's mom. In many ways, she is an ordinary mother. And I love that because as David Lowe says, when it comes to this particular story, did you notice that the shepherd and the woman are just very ordinary? Jesus didn't say, well, there was a king or there was a queen who lost a koi. No, no, no. This is just a shepherd and this is just a woman. That when it comes to who it is that Jesus continually wants to equip to be able to be relentless and to go out and to share the love of God, that God longs to use us, ordinary people. And I actually think this is such an important point that it was point number three last week. Last week, if you were here for the 40th, I had six points that came from Leslie Newbigin. 
And these were six points about what does it mean to be a flourishing church today? And if you were paying attention, this is kind of like the video. How many of you noticed that I skipped over number three? More than saw the gorilla, it seems. I totally skipped over. I have no idea how or why. And I didn't even think about it until it was all done. And I didn't have two services, so I didn't get to use the. I always make mistakes at nine because who cares? Nine o'clock doesn't even pay attention, but they do, apparently. So let me briefly go back to number three. Number three is this. Communities who are prepared for and sustained in the exercise of the priesthood in the world. What does that mean? It means that if a church is going to flourish in our day and age, it cannot be up to the pastors. If a church is going to flourish, it requires a group of people who I would suggest would just be normal people. Who actively understand the role that they have in participating in the kingdom of God. And what I was going to say last week, it's probably where I got thrown off, was that great banquet, what we have this weekend, is does this, I think, probably almost better than anything else that we do. We all, oftentimes we talk about great banquet because it helps people to experience grace, which is true. But one of the things that great banquet really does a great job of, it's almost subversive as well, is helping our folks to see the role that they play. Because one of the greatest things about going through Great Banquet is that then you get to serve on a team. And when you serve on a team, all of a sudden then you begin to discover the role that you can play in helping people to know that they love and that they matter and that they have a role to play. So last week, right, it was all perfect. And then I totally jacked it up. Last week on Wednesday morning, I was at my uh, driveway. I was dropping off our youngest, our eight-year-old, uh, to go to the, on the bus. So I was sitting there. The bus driver came by, a zpc -er and great banqueter. Many of you know who this is, but I'm not going to uh, tell you that it was Joe. And so Joe was there. And as she's getting on there, we're just kind of chit-chatting. And, and he says to me, he says, well, you know, Pastor, he says, this is my ministry. And I said, that's amazing. This is your ministry. Like he gets to be there with all these elementary school ages. I mean, who else wants to do that job? But he gets to do it and he gets to love them and they love Papa Joe. And then that afternoon, very same Wednesday afternoon, I go in, I have an annual exam. I go in and the nurse is also a great banqueter. And as we're sitting there and we're talking, she's all of a sudden, she's bringing up prayer and we're talking about prayer and she clearly sees this as a part of her ministry. Now, if you were to ask me, would you like the person to be a great banquet or a ZPC or who's looking at how much you weigh and going through all of that? No. <laughs> but so be it. And that was remarkable, right? All of these, anytime, anytime that you can begin to understand the role that you play in the kingdom of God, it begins to change how you understand And so as Jesus uses these very kind of ordinary people, just a shepherd, a woman, he is also telling them that you all have a role to play in helping people know that they count and that they matter. And this brings up what I had never seen about this parable, but that uh, Amy Jill Levine helped me to see. It's very obvious. It's very clear. But I think it's remarkable, which is this, that you know how the woman know, knew that she was missing a coin? You know how she knew? She counted it. She counted it and she realized she only had nine and there was one that was left that was lost. Do you know how the shepherd understood that he had missed a sheep, that he only had 99? Do you know how he did that? Because he counted it. 
And the last coin and the last sheep, they counted and they mattered. You see, the shepherd could have easily just looked at and been like, eh, it looks about 100. Let's just roll with it. Or he could have counted all 99 and said, well, you know what? If you get a 99 on a grade, that's pretty good. Why should I worry about that last one? But you see, for the woman and for the shepherd and for God, every single one counts. Every single one matters. And so he goes and he looks after that one. One of the things I think this tells us is this, is that no matter where you are, no matter how dark of a place you are in, no matter how much of a wilderness you find yourself living in, that you still count, you still matter, and Jesus will keep coming after you. It also means that no matter what, even if you think, oh, we're in this great place of success, I've, you know, um, uh, uh, but, or no, I'm in this place and everyone else seems to be successful and I'm not successful and, and they have the ones who have the talents and I don't even count and they're in the big crowd and I'm just over here, I'm by myself because I know a lot of times people are in churches and they feel like they're by themselves. I'm here to tell you this, you count. And Jesus has not lost sight of you. But there's also something else I want you to be mindful of, which is that if, as I believe is the case, this parable was written for the Pharisees, he is also trying to tell them, I don't think they're going to know this right now. I think it's going to take a little time for that mouse to kind of work its way in. But he's also telling them that they matter. Because let's, let's remember, I'm a religious leader, so I get it. Remember, who was the one who wanted to count every single pass and easily missed out on the massive gorilla? You know why Pharisees, religious leaders, people who are successful, you know why they work oftentimes so hard and they do these things? is because they are afraid as well that they do not count, that they do not matter. See, I think that this parable is one of those that kind of comes alive Whenever those who are successful, who feel like everything is going well, I think it comes alive at night when they're laying down in bed, when all of the successes, all of those things are quiet and they're just there by themselves or next to a sleeping spouse and their real selves are there and vulnerable. That's the time when they need to hear this parable and know that everything they're doing to try to prove that they matter, that they're significant, that they have been counted. They need to know, first of all, none of that really matters, but that God is counting them and that they, that you matter to God right now. And here's why I think this is so significant, because these parables are weird the way they end. You ever notice this? How do, they, how do both of these parables end? And how does the parable that we'll talk about next week, the prodigal son, as it's oftentimes called, how does it end? It doesn't end with them being found. It ends with a party. It ends with a celebration. And let's be clear, it is a weird celebration. Have you ever thought about this? There's a sheep. He goes out, he finds his sheep, and he comes back and he's like, Hey! Let's have a party. I found a lost sheep. Okay. 
The woman, she loses a coin and she comes back. The people, A, they, her friends probably didn't even know she had 10 coins. And then you could promise you they didn't know that she had found one of her coins because they didn't know that she had lost it. And she's like, hey, everybody, let's have a celebration. I found this lost coin. I love what Brendan Bryan says about this, this commentary. He says this, he's like, you know what? They would have come. Like they would have come for you know, the shepherds, like, but they would have also been muttering to themselves, man, this guy was weirdly crazy about this sheep. It's just bizarre how excited they are about a sheep. You see, there's something about joy and celebration that I think oftentimes actually what Jesus is trying to show that we kind of lose, especially as we become more religious and as we get older. The more mature, when you see a bunch of people celebrating, right, you might be happy, but we just tend to kind of be a bit more subdued, more respectable. Why would we celebrate so much? I, I shared this oh, a little while back, probably about three years ago now, when we got this notification that I got this sabbatical grant. And I went, I kind of made a to-do about it around dinner. I tried to be subtle and, and, and let them know that we'd gotten this grant. And as soon as I told them, my four girls, they were all just, I mean, they were out of their chairs. They were jumping up and down. They were, you know, I mean, they were just like, woo! And they were like so excited, right? And, 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 and my, uh, she would have been five or six at this point, my youngest, you know, after they'd done this for a couple of minutes and just had lost their minds, then she stops and she's like, wait, why are we jumping up and down? Like, she didn't even need to know why. She just knew, man, if there's a party, if we're joyful, if we're celebrating, let's do this. Now, what was I doing? I was just kind of sitting there. I was happy, but I wasn't going to be overly joyful because I knew things could happen. COVID. And it did. <laughs> Those of us who have seen things over the years, you know, we've been like, well, let's not get too joyful. Let's not celebrate too much, you know. And we wonder at time at these Pharisees, like, oh, yeah, the sinner's there now. But, you know, you can celebrate now, but there's probably likelihood they're going to go off again. Alan's mom could have said, well, yeah, Alan's going to come home, but there's a good chance he's probably going to go to drugs again. Let's not get too excited. Let's not celebrate too much. But what Jesus shows is a God who says, no, 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 let's celebrate. This is amazing. Let's have more celebrations. Look at the joy whenever someone is found. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of this, this, this quote, um, and I think it kind of gets at what, what we're talking about here. It's by G.K. Chesterton, and I think it alludes kind of to the sense of joy. Here's what Chesterton says in uh, his book, Orthodoxy. He says this, because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. Don't go off the slide yet. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead, right? Have you ever done that, right? You got someone on the knee and they love it. And so you just keep doing it and doing it. And as soon as you're done, they will say, do it again. All right, let's go on. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be an automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy 
For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. This childlikeness to which Jesus calls us, there is a beauty in this, it seems to me. You see, what you need to know is that God has this youthfulness, that God never grows tired of looking for us, of trying to find us. And every time that God does, every time that we say, yes, God, please, he says, yes. And God then says, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And I love the sense that our call of us, a part of our call, if you kind of come to worship and you're like, I don't know about my faith. It feels kind of stagnant. They should make things more exciting. We should have better this or, or better that. What I think one of the things is that we need to begin to see is, no, no, we have a role to play because when you begin to play a role and you begin to help someone see that they count and that they matter and that they are loved by God, do you know what you will do after you see how their life has changed? You will look to God and you will say this, do it again. And the more that you see this and the more that you see how lives can be changed and the more that you live into how Jesus has found you and how your life has been changed, the more that you will say each and every day, God, do it again. Do it again. And the more that you will move from muttering and groaning and, and a faith that is flaccid and pale to a faith that is vital, that says this is incredible. God, do it again. And if these Pharisees, if these scribes, if those of us who are successful in faith or in other walks of life, if we could begin to but taste the joy once again of what it means to be in relationship with the God who is always coming after us. And we will wake up each morning with the joy of saying, God, do it again. For the glory of our creator who created the sun and the moon and the daisies and you and me. May it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we do pray that you would help us to see and to experience, God. If we are in the darkness this morning or in the wilderness, maybe we're wondering if we count or if we matter, I pray that you would speak to us even now that they would know that this scripture is for you. It is for the one who is afraid and who wonders if they matter. That Jesus was thinking of them when he told this story. For those, Lord, who have perhaps have been in faith for quite some time, those who, for whom on the surface it looks as if Everything is going well, and yet who know that they are afraid in the darkness of the night of whether they have been noticed at all. I pray that they would know that this passage is for them. For those of us, God, for whom our faith has maybe gone dry and we're wondering if we just need more of something, 
that we would be drawn to the joy that it is to be a part of your movement on this earth, to help others to see that they are loved and looked after by you. Do it again, God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.